on this episode of American Girls. Dr. Felicity, medicine woman, horse dealer, hero. Will she save the day? Maybe. Well, welcome everyone. We made it to episode five. That's amazing. Uh, I'm Mary. And I'm still Allison. And this is American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. We are so thrilled this episode because Felicity is going to save the day. I mean, did she save my day? Did she ruin my day? Honestly, I just don't know how to feel. She took me, you know, much as Penny takes her in this book. Surprise, Penny's back on a wild ride where I was so engrossed. I basically didn't look up for 50 of the 62 pages. So we learned that this is a summer story, you know, because as we're moving through the evolution of the character, we're also moving through the seasons. And I feel like just so much is changing from April to June slash July when this happens. But we've also had quite a busy few weeks. Fair? We've had our own wild ride. It's been absolutely crazy. Before we get into the main event that we both celebrated that I would love to get into, I just want to give a very quick two updates that don't relate to you and are not necessarily your journey, but they're just an update for listeners on the show. I did mention that Stevie Nicks and Janet Jackson were going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they were, I think, two weeks ago now. And Janet used her time to say more women needed to be inducted, so thank you, Janet. Secondly, Stevie Nicks, in a very Stevie move, invited Harry Styles to perform with her and then referenced that he um, approached her for advice on making a solo album when he left NSYNC. You mean one one day? No. I mean, that is the right. That's correct. Oh, no. Stevie was like, yes, he approached me when he left NSYNC. Oh, no. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's okay. Like we all make mistakes. She's allowed. And secondly, and I don't really want to get into this because I'll start crying. And it's just I haven't. I'm almost a week out of this experience and I'm still not emotionally, spiritually over it. And I will just say that I have seen Mariah Carey in the flesh. Did she touch the stage before about 90 minutes after the stated start time of the concert? No. No. But you know what? I respect that. She did do a glitter medley and hashtag justice for glitter is still true. And I just want to put that out there. Thank you for letting me do that, Allison. And now let's get to the thing that really lit us both up inside. So we both belong to a community of public historians. And there is an annual meeting of the National Council for Public History. And so if you are a student or you love history, you love your work at a history site or a museum, this is a really, really fantastic professional community to be a part of. And this year we were super fortunate because their annual meeting was actually in Hartford, Connecticut. So to varying degrees, sort of in our backyard. And there was one panel that had us Like, I guess if you combined the excitement for Woodstock, Mm -hmm. the late night energy of a Vegas and the intellect of a Menza meeting, that comes close to what this meant to us. We were like losing our minds. I mean, first of all, I will say, was it the best for me personally that this panel took place at 830 in the morning? No. No. However, I mean... It was kind of like I was in an odd state. Like I I did arrive a few minutes late. You saved me a seat. Thank you for that. It was like a hush. It was like we were in the room with a celeb. 
we we did get to meet Mark Speltz, who, for those who are very deep into Pleasant Company and American Girl lore, he was the historian for 17 years under Mattel. So he was actually the historian for American Girl. And we also had the opportunity to meet the historian for Levi's, the historian for Carhartt, someone doing really fantastic work at Princeton and NPR, respectively. But I would say most importantly, there was kind of this second conversation that happened as Speltz was talking, where he asked a question of, you know, among the room who felt that American Girl was important to their development. It was like literally every hand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we took to the Twitter as we are want to do. And that was where we really got to start to connect first digitally and then in person with some people who are both in our professional world. And as we've learned, part of our listenership. Right. I mean, now I probably could have prepared better for this and actually brought some actual recording equipment with me. But we had no idea that we were going to meet so many amazing other women historians um, who for whom American Girl was just as important for them as it has been for us. And in fact, what we ended up doing was kind of hosting a guerrilla style recording session in the hallway of this convention center. And we recorded some stories um, by three women historians in particular, which we are going to bring you at a later date. Um, and also, it's kind of inspired us to keep collecting um, stories from women for whom this franchise has meant a lot. So please keep an eye out because in the next couple of weeks, we are going to launch a website for the podcast where you can find episodes and info, but also it will give you a space to share your own story and you might end up on the show. Yeah, and we wanted to share one of the people who reached out to us afterwards. Her name is Rachel Klein, and she's a historian, and we have permission to cite her here. And she reached out to us, and this response is, you know, both distinctively hers and I think typical of what a lot of people are sending us. And she says, Felicity and Kirsten were my favorites, and I cherished my dolls. Still do. I loved Molly's stories as well, though didn't have the doll. I'm sorry, Rachel. That's me. I remember in sixth grade knowing the answers to questions during a history lesson because of Felicity's books. They taught me to love women's environmental and architectural history as well as material culture. They brought the past alive to me. I'm forever indebted. Now, I just want to fangirl for a second and also say that Rachel is kind of a big deal. She's the historian for the U.S. Forest Service, and she does really fantastic work that pushes conventional narratives about what people think of women and government and did an awesome presentation at this conference. So we're talking people who are doing really phenomenal work, really interesting things with their lives. And for them to say, you know, this was the germ of it. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And one of the folks I talked to at the conference whose story we're going to bring you at the sh- on the show at some point is actually the archivist of NPR. And it's so funny um, hearing people talk about the books and the dolls because we have such strong associations with Molly, for example, and to meet other women who also have similar um, loyalties and identifications and even just willing to throw shade. Like at one point, um, the archivist uh for npr was talking about a birthday party she went to that was not great that was an american girl theme party and i will let her tell that story but um just at the end of it i just started laughing because at one point she was like they were all kirsten's (gasps) and it was like she didn't need to say anything else to me i understood although i will say that so many listeners of this show have told allison and i that we clearly don't remember anything about those books and we agree with you like we admit we don't remember a thing about these books we probably got a lot wrong 
and we're willing to like I can't wait to actually get to those books because I feel like I've missed quite a bit and I'm gonna say this like the highlight we do remember, which is apparently not the actual highlight of the arc of the books, the girl made a mean breakfast. That's true. That's she really important. Cakes. And that she loves really candles. Yep. I also love candles. Sure. I guess part of what we're saying is, you know, we're taking a critical lens with these books, but we are also with Rachel and with lots of you where we respect the fact that it got us on a path where we could look at the books this way. Exactly. And I will just say this is not related, but the Levi archivist is kind of living my dream because she gets to wear jeans every day. And I know like your role in my life, among others, is you tell me when I can't wear jeans to an occasion. Like in grad school, you'd preemptively text me and say like, Mary, you can't wear jeans to that. And sometimes I needed that. But you know, it's like, maybe I'll get married in jeans. We don't know. You know, I won't stop that. I won't say that I'll support it. But I won't stop it. But you also hate jeans. So it's like I, you're not a fair person to try to police me on this. I do. And this is where, again, our differences are important relative to the books. I loved the dolls. I loved the outfits. I loved the clothing. Notably, none of which in the early series involves pants. Yeah. Yeah. See, I can't with that. That's not for me. But, no. um, you know, we know ourselves. You know, we know what journey we're on. And... Maybe I'm just like Lady Levi, to quote one of the vintage Levi ads we saw in the presentation, but I know that about myself. Maybe that could be my future American girl. She wears I jeans. hear that. Anyway, NCPH was, was what a dream. It's really some of the three to four best days of our year where we get to just kind of be with people who do similar or in some cases really interesting, different work and Honestly, it was really such a joy to meet people who said that they had listened. That was really impactful. But, you know, this is a thing that we've talked about for literally years. And now that it's actually out in the world, it's really exciting. And we feel like this could be the start of a great community. So we're happy that you're along with us. Totally. Now, I want to make sure that we give this book its due because I know we have divergent opinions. Mm Mm-hmm. So I do just want to also mention that American Girl this week was kind of on fire over the black hole picture. Please say more. So American Girl does a lot of kind of female, I think often like cis boosterism, right? Fair. Sure. On their Twitter. And it was a woman scientist, Katie Bauman, who got the first picture of a black hole. And a lot of people are saying she helped. She didn't help. She did it. She did it. That's a classic situation. And... Of course, there's this clear link between Katie Bauman and Luciana. Of course. So she was the girl of the year, previous year, 2018. And she, I think, wants to go to Mars, has ambitions to live on Mars. I'm not sure. But it was kind of this interesting moment, too, where you're seeing just how different the brand is today versus 25 to 30 years ago. Not that science doesn't come into these stories. As we learn in this book, Felicity is also an herbal healer. (laughs) Didn't see that coming, but here it is. But there is this aspect of it's always so striking to me how much big companies like this have a lot invested in promoting certain kinds of stories like women in STEM. But you would never see any kind of a comparable excitement about a woman winning an NEH grant or Guggenheim or MacArthur Genius for poetry. And that takes nothing away from this scientist who I know did a phenomenal thing, even though I don't want to look at it. You know, I'm scared of space. (laughs) 
I don't know if scared's the right word. I'm skeptical. I, I want us to still have listeners, so I won't say much more beyond that. Okay, but that's probably wise, but yeah. I did also just feel like, of course it had to be a female scientist who captured a black hole. <laughs> like, it's 2019. It's a metaphor. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's get into the book. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So per our publisher... Felicity loves summertime on Grandfather's Plantation. She can be outside all day, riding horses, playing with Nan and William, and exploring the woods. One day, Felicity finds a secret note. It's from Ben, her father's apprentice, and it asks for help. Ben has broken his apprenticeship agreement and is running away to join George Washington's army. Felicity begins a dangerous adventure when she goes to help Ben. She must use all of her strength, courage, and wisdom to try to save the day. So... Just a little bit more background from us before we really get into it. It's super hot. It's Virginia. It's July. Mrs. Merriman is pregnant. There's a revolution. So let's go on a road trip with the wild and spunky 10-year-old. Seems like a great idea. Um, I think one of the reasons this book exists as it does is it allows the characters to get away from Williamsburg for just a bit. And it gives Valtrip an opportunity to bring Penny back into the fold that's the as a pun as i've spelled it very but nice. it may not work verbally um but we learn that penny has been near grandfather's plantation we'll get into more of what that means in a minute in terms of the people who are living at the plantation uh, but this book also really does a lot to give us deeper insight into ben who lashes out and runs away in an effort to join the army and in trying to break his contract early all he actually breaks is his leg He ends up hurting himself and falling in the woods. So he sends Felicity a note via secret means, and he hides out while she heals him. There's two men who come by the plantation, and they're very very aggressive, and they are looking for Ben and the eight-pound reward. Felicity really tries to convince Ben that he needs to do the right thing, but first she helps him to try to flee. Then realizing she's sending him right into the path of where these two men are going to try to entrap him, she convinces him to surrender himself to their father, Mr. Edward, we just learned that's his name, Merriman, who seems really chill about everything. Wow. I don't even know where to begin with this book. Honestly, Valerie Tripp, explain yourself. I liked it. Allison... So I, so here's, here's what I liked about it. I think it had a, 
faster pace. I think there was things about the pacing that was really different. Uh And I also think it got us away from some of the petty stuff with Felicity being in the schooling context that I don't find interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the change of scenery was interesting. I think Val went into this book with a much clearer and cleaner set of what the sense of what the plot would be. And there's very clear beats in this book of like this happens and it leads to this and so on and so on. I think my problem is that of all the books we've read so far, this book has the absolute worst racial politics of anything I've read in AG since we've started this journey. Like it's just, but and not in terms of like this is avowedly racist, but I'm saying in terms of like 90s interpretations of woke and like, and you know, like progressive ideas on race would look like and I so I think part of it is reading it from 2019 it feels not great I think one of the first things that really kind of was shocking to me and I read the peek into the past really closely to try to kind of parse this out so sort of an underlying argument of why they're doing what they're doing is they're leaving the city right they're leaving Williamsburg to go to Kings Creek because ostensibly it's going to be more comfortable for them. And this really doesn't make a lot of sense. And again, we have very smart listeners. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But even very early on, historically, like, yes, I understand people left cities. They would summer in other locations. They did not tend to migrate to plantations. Right. So, Her argument, or sorry, the argument in the back of the book is that people in this period of an upper class would spend time at other people's properties if they had the class and the leisure to do so. But what's so confusing to me is everything we know about Deep South or even certain kinds of like mid-Atlantic plantations of this time, they're a disaster disease-wise. So I need a note, like this plantation is being talked about like Club Med. It's a labor camp where everyone is flipping out about miasmas. It's a cesspool. Right. And there's like very real specific dangers, even on coastal, I would say, especially on coastal plantations that these people are going to be facing. And Felicity and her pregnant mother, they're running right into it. It makes absolutely no sense. And there's all these really weird asides about the material culture that Felicity is like curating or creating to enjoy herself on this like vacay at grandpa's <laughs> plantation. So there's multiple moments where she creates basically bubbles for herself as like a whimsical fun time. And each time I was like yelling at the book, like, girl, make a fan enough with the bubbles. Like, what are you doing? But it's also like every time she's like going into the river and all these sources of water, I'm thinking like, what is the sanitation at this plantation? Uh. Where's all the water flowing through? Like, where are the latrines? What's happening with typhoid? Like, what is happening here? And it's just, it's a real shock. So pages eight to nine, so very early on, Felicity and her grandfather are going out with the horses and she hasn't been reunited with Penny yet. So she's on a different horse and they talk about how the morning is still cool. So they're out inspecting and it says she'd listen while grandfather spoke to the field hands and the overseer about the weather. She'd let go of the reins while Jessamine, just her new horse, grazed with the sheep and the cows and the grassy meadows. Most of all, Felicity loved to watch the horses running in the huge fenced pasture. 
And this is kind of a constant thing. And you wonder how much consciousness there was of this, where there is this consistent juxtaposition between enslaved people forced to do work for this family and horses just living their best life. Exactly. And, and, and they're always next to each other. They're always next to each other. And you note that the horses are fenced in. And the enslaved people, there's no mention of the very real restrictions on their lives. Um, and also the note that grandfather finds it whimsical and fun that the horses are rebellious, that when Penny does emerge as kind of like this bad girl horse and a group of horses that Mr. Wentworth wants to sell to grandfather, um, he's kind of like, oh, like it's wild. And, and Felicity is able to tame Penny upon recognition. And he wants to reunite Penny with Felicity. He wants um, this moment of reunion in a way that you can imagine also as an overseer, as an owner of enslaved people, he might not have the same qualms about maybe separating his enslaved people that he owns for economic gain. So there is this very strange juxtaposition of his relationship with um, Felicity and their respect and love for horses that does not translate to people. And it's a blindness that, for me at least, doesn't seem to end with the characters that she creates. It seems to carry over to Valerie Tripp herself. <gasps> yep. I said it. It's real. I want to say two things. One, in the peek into the past in the back, I think it's very telling of the time in which this book was published that enslaved people are referred to as slaves. So um, that's an important distinction because to refer to enslaved people as slaves defines their entire personhood um, by their property status. Um, And it robs us of the opportunity to think about the power at work and um, um, in their lives and displaces responsibility. I also think um, that Valerie Tripp, speaking of displacing responsibility, there's a scene, not to get too far ahead, but um, when Felicity is um, coming back from helping Ben the first time, she hears um, slave catchers coming to grandfather to try to, and to offer to find him for the $8 reward. And they say that they're going to be rough with him. They're used to being rough and they can be rough to bring him back. And Valerie Tripp writes as kind of narration after this exchange, Felicity did not hear what grandfather replied. So she kind of absolves the characters about whom she also wants you to care deeply from any responsibility or culpability in this culture in which he's most definitely a compliant member. Um, So I found that to be really weird and just kind of like not fully ready to commit to the history in which to the era in which she's setting this story. Yeah, I think, first of all, I absolutely agree with you. And I think when we're looking at it now, again, there's been such a huge shift because I even know that when I started doing work in public history, it was very common to say slaves. Very, And, and I'm saying like that is a very important and unfortunately more recent change to say enslaved people. So I'm going to read just a short section from the peak into the past because I think it shows one, that change hadn't happened yet. And two, in the 90s, Tripp and other people working on these books, there was sort of these two things, one of which was they had access to all of this fantastic social and to some degree cultural history of life on plantations. So it's like there's more information about why people ran away, right? That is talked about in the peak into the past. And there's knowledge reflected in terms of things like, you know, to quote, some slaves learned skills like shoemaking, carpentry, or weaving. That way the plantation could provide many things it needed from the work of its slaves. 
there's also talk about gardening. There's talk about all these different social aspects. But I think what it comes down to is there's no blunt point about all of these things are part of a system. And I get you're not going to get into structural politics in a book written for nine-year-olds. But I think one of the things that people of all ages and especially children of that age feel so deeply is things not being fair. And I think something as simple as, you know, if you're teaching Frederick Douglass to people of any age, one of the things that he writes about in his autobiography that is so clear and easy to explain to people is when he's working as an enslaved person on a plantation, it's one thing. Then he gets sent to Norfolk, Virginia, and he's doing caulking. He's doing work on ships and money is being passed right in front of him to his owner. And that's really a moment where he has this other understanding of himself that that's so unfair, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like there's this condition that exists in a lot of people now are calling them forced labor camps as opposed to plantations. That's absolutely valid. There's these conditions that exist there. And then there's these other conditions in these urban areas where this is a the person literally seeing money being passed right over him. And like, that's a particular kind of injustice that even someone very young can completely grasp. And it's such an opportunity and it's so missed. Yeah. There's just this kind of blindness. It's almost like Valerie Tripp wants us to take on the blinders that Felicity has as a child of privilege in a time where she's both aware that slavery exists and in some sense must have figured out that it makes her life possible Um, in a lot of ways, but it's kind of like, it's in my life, but it's not all of my life. I don't really, I'm not responsible for this and I don't really need to think about it. And I think that that's something that kind of goes through a lot of the different, maybe not the books, but in in some of the language I see and how the company presents American Girl sometimes. Like when I was reading this, I actually couldn't help but think about Blair and how if Blair wandered into this book, she'd probably look around grandfather's plantation and be like, wow, I could throw an amazing plantation wedding here. Yeah. And Sally, well, like, that's a thing still. And and I apologize because I don't mean to take someone's words and not give them credit. But I saw a conversation on Twitter where someone said, oh, like Felicity's family owned people, not a Felicity fan anymore. And I also get that. I completely get that. I'm going to find that tweet because I know that we retweeted it at some point, And that's right. important. Um And I just, I wanted to make sure I got this right because the person who said it is an important author, Cameron Garrett. And the exact quote is, I sort of forgot that Felicity's Merriman's family owned slaves. And then she does the stars, gets rid of my books. And then she clarifies, Josefina is obviously the best. (laughs) I love that. And she says, Samantha is super cool if I'm not forgetting any hidden slaves. Yeah. And I get that impulse. Like, I think we're living in a time of cancel culture. And if we find, you know, some people find things that are problematic or triggering in some way, and they have to kind of take space from it. And I completely respect that impulse. Um, You know, I myself find it very difficult some days to listen to the news just because it's so, it seems like so apocalyptic at times. But I do think it's hard with something like American Girls, where it's, you know, something that means so much to you from a place in your childhood and being a historian and wanting to kind of figure this out and see how it can fit in your life as a 32-year-old person. Um, That has been the toughest part of rereading these books so far is kind of not encountering enslaved people in the past in these books, which obviously we would, but encountering really honestly Valerie Tripp's 
90s way of dealing with this um, in a way that seems so hell-bent on absolving white people in the 90s rather than offering a realistic depiction of white and black relations in the 1770s. Yeah, and there's even an interesting dynamic because we've talked a lot about Ben and like what we're supposed to do with Ben and the way he's both sort of absorbed into the family but is definitely an other to the extent that he's an apprentice. Like, I want to say a few things about that, one of which is like, where is his family? Like, we're acting like he's an orphan. (laughs) He does have a last name. It's Davidson. We learned that in this book. And so Felicity does really save him. She saves him to the extent that there are people chasing after him. He's in a medical emergency. He's like, of course, this 10-year-old is giving me the care that I And also, we find out he's 16. (laughs) I read that, and I literally put the book down. and was like, are you kidding? He's 16? It frankly also puts two different scenes, at least, in a different light, because basically he's he's marrying age at this point. Right. One, all the stuff with the pants, and two, thank you. Basically, their date at the governor's palace. What, like, you know, honestly, what is happening? Because nine and fifteen are a leap at any age. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like a sixteen right. in seventeen seventy six is like a twenty nineteen. 35. 35. Okay, I'll give you that one. But what is a 10 in 1776? It's 10 in 2019. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't change. No. no. Still inappropriate. And I I think I, I guess I want to clarify, like, some of my earlier comments, because this book really did sweep me in. I liked the stage changing, but it's also the reason why there's a problem with this book. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, totally. And I think... Even them changing the setting kind of, as you're saying, increases the 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 starkness of the issues with this book for me. Because, for example, um, so just to give a, like, I know we gave the summary, but so Ben runs away and then the father puts an ad in a newspaper reporting that he's run away and offering a reward for his return. Felicity helps him when he's hiding in the woods. And my question, so this is a sidebar. I want to return to this in a minute. But, like, why does he have that whistle? He's not in the militia. <laughs> just gonna say that why do you have this whistle it doesn't make you know any what? sense allison do you know what he is like he's a person who watches a documentary about doomsday preppers and he's like i'm not that guy but then he goes <laughs> on amazon and buys like half the arsenal or he's like the guy who's a reenactor of different conflicts who kind of takes on like the the trauma of being in the conflict when he's really just reenacting it okay this is reminding me of something and this is like an embarrassing story but i'm gonna tell it anyway remember that time when we went to dinosaur world or whatever that was and so alice and i live in different states so we will often meet up at like a place that's midway for us and you basically i'm very trusting of you you just texted me an address and i put it into my gps and i just drove there and i didn't put together that it was this place that has like fake dinosaurs that kids can look at yeah but it also has like an agricultural museum, an antique shop. It was fantastic. It was great. We had a great time. But so we met this man in the antique store and he was like our age, I'll presume. Was he? Are you are you freaking no, out because I'm, I'm just I'm like back at that place. Oh my god. You caused this. I can't no, you are not allowed to act like upset right now. No. I know. I know. We met this man. He I was, just, I need to, no, listeners, no. I need to give you one other piece of context. This was when I was once a month trying to set Mary up with a man. That's all I'll say about that. And, oh, okay, yeah, you were. 
and I I can't even get into that and how misguided those attempts were. Um, not your taste. No, I don't want to comment on your husband. He's not related to this. You were literally like there would literally be men who were like barely holding it together, could not have a conversation with like a potato, and he'd be like, "He's a seven. You'd be like, "Mary, get his number. He's a seven. He was not a seven. Okay. I think they called this one a nine. Yeah, you were know. like, oh my God, he's a nine. So we need this man. Again, there's no one in this place but us. And he's like, what brings you to like Dino World girls or like whatever, like strikes up a convo with us. And we're like, uh, we're just friends hanging out. Not a big deal. Please go away. Like I'm kind of like, I'm a very polite, friendly person, but I was kind of in a place of like, not now. And yeah. he, he was like, oh, and I somehow we told him we were historians and he, this was a mistake. So he was like, I too am a historian. I am a reenactor. No shade at reenacting, just shade at this particular person. And I, so I was like, what war do you reenact? Thinking he would say civil war. And instead he was like, basically like all the wars. <laughs> do remember? remember? And he was like, Revolutionary well. War, check. Civil War, check. Spanish-American War, sure. And then he was like, World War One. I. I was once at a reenactment where there was like planes flying overhead, throwing out like plate, like bills like you know like war materials and i was like um okay world war ii and then he says in vietnam he's like you know i put on the the black pajamas (laughs) it's like what (laughs) so we this took us down a journey where we then got into like the instagram world of the vietnam war yeah don't get into that don't get into that american girl is a really safe corner of the instagram world that area is not safe don't go there but basically like so then allison was like you should get his phone number and i was like absolutely not like i can't believe you think this is what i deserve in my life but he kept kind of like like showing up everywhere we were and you were kind of like you could have been queen of dino world the end but just to bring it back to reenactors, like Vietnam reenactors basically do this weird thing where they sort of take on like the persona as if they've actually served. Now, I do want to acknowledge that there are real service people um, from Iraq and Afghanistan who do take up Vietnam reenacting as a kind of therapeutic exercise to deal with their own trauma. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who have like never stubbed their toe, who were like, ah, like Vietnam, like nobody gets it. And it's like, you don't get it. And why would you want to get it? Why would you want to get it? And Ben to me is that person. Like when he's talking about going away, it's like you cannot find your way to Yorktown without a 10-year-old girl on a wild horse. Yeah. And so he sends her this like, we'll post this on Instagram. It's insane. It's insanely childish map. That is so basic and juvenile. It's and insane. he puts it in this bird bottle, which is a gift that Felicity gives to grandfather. So he's he stashes it in there. What's critical about this, and we'll show you the two to contrast, given the same amount of resources, Felicity, again, she's 10, draws him this like fantastically beautiful and useful map. Right. And we're so <sighs> I don't know what we could take from that, but... And it's also like, what is wrong with you as a 16-year-old man? And I am going to call him a man for this time. Yeah. Like, referring to Felicity as a friend, like, having these weird moments where they're, like, one-on-one, like, remember the good times, like, with Penny and we tried to free her and, like, those days. 
And like Felicity has to talk to you about not being a coward and not being a liar. But see, I think that scene, I think this is part of why when I finished, I ended the book on an uptick and then I was depressed by the peak into the past. But you kind of end on an uptick because I actually felt like it was one of the most realistic and true to history scenes in the entire series that she chastises him for breaking the contract with her father. And he ultimately kind of gives into that. And I think that actually felt the most true to life where given her class standing, even though she is 10 and female, that sass did something to him because she calls him a coward and he actually changes his behavior as a consequence. It made me think of that book, Affairs of Honor, about kind of like genteel culture in early America between men when like you know threatening the reputation of another man was like an ultimate offense and why dueling culture even existed in the first place in some part like not just a culture of masculinity but that vows of honor that your character and your public presentation of yourself was was in some ways like the highest currency that you held um and to give it away or have someone else cheapen the value of it was something for which you'd be willing to, to lay down your life so in a sense, yeah, I think you're right. The fact that she went right to that. But it's also like, Felicity, what the hell are you talking about? Sorry, what have you sacrificed? You lost your horse and Grandpa just bought it for you. Like, it was cool. I mean, so, I want to say this. I, I honestly, I was in a cafe when I was reading this and I actually like really had such a strong physical reaction. I had to chill because there was an actual child behind me and I'm the one reading a child's book. So in the early pages where it's Felicity's family and friends portraits, Penny has replaced Marcus. (laughs) We won't even go there. It's, it's, it's a, it's a troubling scenario, but we get portraits of Mr. Wentworth and Mrs. Wentworth. And if you're interested in the world of the Kings Creek plantation, there are additional stories about Felicity that get into that, like peril at Kings Creek. But Mrs. Wentworth is described in this way a lady who has strong opinions and i was like yes girl she's a hero i loved her what do you think felicity is going to grow up into exactly so there's a scene where she gives her opinion and then says if you ask me and val tripp's next line is no one had asked i was like you know what val just because felicity's bored I'm not. Right. And then Val actually does her really dirty because there's a description of her at this dinner, which is described as being in a very hot dining room in the plantation. And it reads, Mrs. Wentworth's plumpish face was pink as a boiled ham. You know, don't fat shame. Yeah. We don't need that. We don't need that. I don't need this this body stuff coming out against her. Sorry. I didn't need to hear that. You know, and then there's like weirdness around the pregnancy. You know, thank God we've done the math. The pregnancy didn't happen at the same time as Mrs. Merriman's illness, or I'd have questions, you know, and fear for the health of baby Polly. But then there's like weird kind of hints about her being pregnant. And it's like, just tell us we can handle it. We're all adults here. And apparently Felicity's an adult and a doctor and a geographer and a million other things at this point. We, We do have to talk about her rogue medicine work in the woods i was impressed i mean i'm seriously impressed by this now as we said last episode every book we're finding out a new thing that she's good at that's just sort of assumed um and this time it's medicine 
which we she we're not assumed that she has this knowledge she actually shares that grandfather taught her how to take herbs from the garden and grind them up to make certain medicines and um healing mixtures like witch hazel i loved that it was very cool though i will say that you know were i a patient of hers as ben was and she said to me as she said to ben this pastel or whatever medicine works very well when he cuts his leg she puts it on him and says like this works amazing i've used it on my horse <laughs> again i'd be like a lesser uh, social excuse class. Me? yeah <laughs> is there a colonial so, web md i can like review you at so you made a note and it really like it's not a connection i made but i'm so glad that you did because it really took me to a place where you said felicity merriman aka Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Indeed. That show ran for not long enough. I'll say that. I believe it ran for six seasons. Does that sound right to you? That sounds right. So it's on Prime. So I know what I'm doing for the next <laughs> years. So this is roughly contemporaneous with these books because it started in 93 with the fantastic Jane Seymour, who has not aged a day since this came out. Mm-hmm. Whether that's but- natural maybe well, she she's got she had woman. that witch hazel felicity made her some witch hazel medicine. yeah and i'm just gonna say this briefly as kind of a shout out or really a shout into the void there was a boy named matthew who used to call me dr quinn medicine woman or dr allison medicine woman in fifth grade and he meant it you're making big eyes as a disparaging remark and i remember this very well i'm gonna tell you what kindergarten to grade six any group seating scenario, I usually sat with all boys who were misbehaving because I had upright behavior. Do you understand? Uh huh. So I was supposed to be, you know, like taming the group here. This mm-hmm. was this was like nineties optimism, feminism period. <laughs> or a girl help culture. And I look back on that now and I think, you know what? It is Dr. Allison. So Matthew is dead now. I don't know what Matthew is doing and I'm not particularly interested. Oh, I'm sorry, I meant to me. Oh, okay. So, but I look back on that and I do think being the age that we are, there were these, we can now recognize like deeply problematic white female heroes on TV that were of a very specific moment. And it's like, of course, Felicity and Dr. Quinn are of the same exact period. Mm -hmm. Because now I'm kind of afraid to really find out. I think the whole premise of her being a quote medicine woman, I'm sure she's appropriating indigenous healing practice. Oh, very much so. And her like, love interest, Sully, was oh. like a white man amongst indigenous people, correct? Yeah. I'm Are seeing you looking this alf- up? I'm seeing the outfit. It's not great. I'm concerned. Of Dr. Quinn? Yeah. Of of her partner, Sully. Oh yeah, no, that's not good. He basically pretended to be like an indigenous person the whole time, correct? Well, it says for the pilot, Byron Sully, an enigmatic man whose closest companions are Indians and a wolf, becomes Mike's friend. <laughs> she struggles for acceptance. Mike is Dr. Quinn. Did he know uh, Elizabeth Holmes? She also had a wolf. That was her closest companion, or is, I, maybe. It's troubling. I do also just want to say, as an aside, we have gotten several questions slash comments slash accusations as to why we're not doing Kaya first. And we do understand that one, her story is important. And two, it's chronologically first. She's just not part of the first five. Yeah, we're doing the first five in chronological order of setting, and then we're going to branch out. So that may not make sense to you and that's okay but it's what made sense to us initially so it's what we're running with but we are definitely going to get there so don't worry 
like if you're a sweet very young angel and you just like grew up with these additional characters like kit this will seem strange but the early american girls collection under pleasant was the first five i'm just flashing back to all the saturday nights at eight o'clock that i was forced to watch dr quinn medicine woman because my parents were way into it i wasn't forced i was like it was a lean in I mean, I think of all the shows that we watched on Saturday night, it was probably my favorite. We also watched Nash Bridges. Did you ever watch that? Of course. <laughs> Don Johnson in the car. Do you also remember uh, early edition? Oh, oh, yeah. Kyle I Chandler really... has my age. No, oh my God. He looks amazing. Friday Night age. Lights, honestly, I, I can't get into it. You haven't seen that yet, have you? No. Oh, Do you know why God. I wasn't in the right intellectual place for it when... It was kind of presented to me, but I will get there. That's totally fine. I just remember the summer I was reading for comps at night. I would either need to be like completely lulled back to being feeling human and have like hope. So I would watch Friday Night Lights and watch Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton, National Treasure. Or other nights I would want to feel like my life was not as stressful as someone else's. So I'd watch The Wire. Oh, yeah, of course. So it's complicated, but it made sense at the time. So something interesting happened with this book. Like we kind of hit this plateau previously where people kind of stopped reviewing by book three and book four. And then book five, people came out of the woodwork to give really in-depth thoughts. Please share. So I found a range of reviews from a few different sources, uh, one of which, always just love these short and to the point, Rachel in 2018 cried. Wow. That's just always one of my favorites when people get right to the jump. So Danae, who's reviewing Goodreads. True. And that's quite apt. It had to be hidden initially from me because it has spoilers, but I can give them to you. She says, I like the way this book explores right and wrong and Ben wanting to fight for the Patriots, but being contracted to Felicity's father and Felicity wanting to help her friend, but being obligated to tell her parents that she (laughs) found him. Actually, doesn't have a point after that, but also Penny's back. She comes back to the thing that really matters to her. And I respect that. I think she's trying to mirror the chaos that Val Tripp throws us into <laughs> over these 62 pages. But Denise- I think she's like, look, um, a man runs away, 16-year-old man runs away because he thinks that fighting for the Patriots will benefit his life personally. The person who owns, aka rents him, um, puts an ad in and hires slave catchers to catch him. Big reveal, he's a white boy. So Denise in 2013, she's on the same exact train as you. She talks about how they're a good introduction to history, but then she adds, would it really be possible for Felicity to have done what she did? Even if she did, would it be accepted and praised by her family? I doubt it. Another issue I had with this book in particular is the disregard of slavery on the grandfather's plantation. We are led to believe that Felicity is an intelligent and forward-thinking child. We are led to see her as a mirror of ourselves, and yet we are supposed to believe she would go out for a ride with her grandfather every morning to check on things in the fields and have no qualms about slavery. On the one hand, she gets upset and we get to explore the treatment of a horse, but the slaves on her grandfather's plantation, not a. And I think this gets at the heart of these books where both, I think it was and is possible to think yourself a really ethical person and to also have no misgivings about systems around you that are terrible because they serve you on some level. Well, right. That's the definition of privilege. But I also think that narratively, I understand where this book is from. But then also, I think that's where the back of the book 
really has a shortcoming. Because I think if we're really supposed to get into Felicity's perspective, it doesn't excuse the way that people are written and talked about in the books, but it does immerse ourselves into a moment where, yeah, she could have been that that unwilling to see this as a problem. But then the back of the book needs to do the corrective work. Right. It needs to do the corrective work of explaining the culture in which she lived and its really harsh cruelties, but also explaining what Felicity's privilege would have looked like. So it's not that um, Valerie Tripp wouldn't be aware that, you know, the plight of slavery and, and consciously making Felicity blind to it, but that blindness might be purposeful and it might have a historical antecedent. And it would be kind of good to explain that to a particular nine or 10 year old reader. Yeah. And then I think this is the difference between, you know, a book that stands alone. And then hopefully, if you're on a field trip, or if you're on some kind of experience or program, I think, without making a false equivalence, there's always questions you can ask yourself of what are the systems that I'm part of, that I choose to see as not so bad. Right. Totally. She's fully in the fields and does not have issues. No, there's no internal. And the thing is, we do get to go inside her head. We do get to know her thoughts when, for example, she realizes that Ben's in danger when the slave catchers are going to go exactly where she has sent him. We see her panic, internal panic and her thoughts. So we do get a glimpse into her internal life. So it almost seems like Valerie Tripp is saying, yeah, we can see inside her head, but I'm choosing not to take you there when her thoughts would be uncomfortable for you. Well, think too. I mean, we can draw a really clear contrast. She has this incredible empathy for Ben and she wants to fix his situation. By contrast, in the previous book, when Isaac says, this could be a real danger for me, she's like, girl, I know. It's no big. It's no big deal. Now, serious question for you. Mm -hmm. To what extent is Kings Creek, aka grandfather's, you know, plantation, aka the family's summer home, Mount Vernon? I mean, I would love to ask our president. He seems like he's equipped to answer that. Yeah, so we thought it was sort of fateful that we were recording this the week that President Trump actually did a visit to Mount Vernon, and this got written up. You know, lots of people take my tours. Nobody writes about them, but that's a different issue. You want Politico Um, to cover you? I don't, and it hit a bit close to home because they interviewed Doug Bradburn, who actually did the tour. And he talked about something that an average reader wouldn't know is just good interpretive technique. He says he was trying to get the president interested in the house by thinking and talking about things that he would care about. So real estate, wealth, and kind of putting the world of Washington in terms that would interest his listener. And instead of giving the particulars of that visit any more airtime than they've already been given... I want to talk about people who worked on an exhibit at Mount Vernon that I think is really important. Does that work for you? Yeah, totally. So there is this really, really critical exhibition called Lives Bound Together. It's also been published and it's right on the Mount Vernon website. And that Lives Bound Together is an opportunity to really think critically about how the lives of enslaved people were intertwined with those who owned them. And the Washingtons are a really, unfortunately, useful example of this because many of the people who were enslaved at that plantation were not the property of George Washington. They actually belonged to his wife. And people have been really desperate, I think, to redeem Washington as, quote, not really 
an owner of enslaved people or to kind of distance him from it. But this exhibit really forces you to think about how much of this plantation was really a place that enslaved people lived. It was not just a house of privilege. It was really a place that for the vast majority of people who moved through there was a pretty awful place. It was a place from which you had no escape. And again, instead of giving questions or comments that came up during that most recent visit any more air, I really want to honor the work that these people did at Lives Bound Together because it totally changes the conversation and it's exactly where these kinds of places need to go. Right. And there's a book I also want to recommend. Scott Casper. Yeah, Scott Casper. It's your fave. It's my fave. I love this book. He wrote a book called Sarah Johnson's Mount Vernon, The Forgotten History of an American Shrine. Um, This book came out in 2008. I highly recommend this book. It's basically a history of Mount Vernon that it does not center George Washington. In fact, it centers Sarah Johnson, an enslaved woman who lived there her entire life through both George Washington's lifetime and then stayed with Mount Vernon after his death um, as the estate evolved into what it's become today, which is essentially a shrine to George Washington. So it really changes the perspective and gives you a really rich history of enslaved folks experience um, by centering and basically making a biography of an enslaved woman at this national shrine to a president and not writing yet another biography of George Washington, who I'm not afraid to say, I think is not worth the hype. So someone who is worth the hype is Cynthia Chin. 100%. So this great listener reached out to us and we wanted to talk a little bit about what she sent us. And please do not be surprised if we have a lot more from her because she kind of made us feel like we were in touch with a celeb. Oh my God. Not a joke. Not a joke. Cynthia Chin is like one connection away from Valerie Tripp. So yeah. I hope Valerie doesn't listen to this. Oh my God. We've said a lot. I think she, I think she would get it though. Yeah. Um, So Cynthia reached out to us and talked about what drew her in about the series. And I won't read everything she wrote to us because I feel like Cynthia is basically her own episode. And I don't want you to love her more than us. You can. But um, she talks about how when she says what drew her in was the attention to historical accuracy that Pleasant Company, then owned by Pleasant Rollid, demanded of its doll accessories. Felicity's bedtime mules are real whip-stitch doeskin. The textile of the gown of her first book, Meet Felicity, is based off of an extant original. When I needed to secure Felicity's calico pinner apron to her spring gown, I was supplied with miniature straight pins on a tiny white card. While I had no idea the level of accuracy of these things, as she and I shared tea parties together, what Pleasant Company did was train my hands and eyes to kinesthetically experience and see historical accuracy in doll form and encourage the development of my material literacy. And she goes on to tell us that she has since worked at Mount Vernon. She is now doing her PhD at Georgetown. And she is examining Martha Washington's three surviving gowns, which haven't been studied, which is very cool, um, and giving us a different understanding of how this material culture reveals something about the world in which she lived. And there's so much that I love about what she sent us, including the fact that she has a hookup. Um, but basically, she's one heartbeat away from Valerie Tripp. You need to know that. But and I also think some all-stars at Mount Vernon. Yes. 
And what's so wonderful about the way that she reached out to us and what she shared with us is, again, this kind of takes me back to the photo of the black hole. I do think it's so valuable to celebrate the ways that women are involved in STEM fields, right? And to talk about this. But this small piece of, not small, a piece of me always feels like there's this internalized misogyny against things that are associated with female interests. And I just think back to that young boy kind of taunting me for liking that show or liking Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman when she was a hero to me. And at that time I was pre-med, that's like a different podcast, but that was a person who was a role model who, again, I see problems now that I'm 31, but as a young person, that was heroic. And the fact that this young person, Cynthia, was able to have what she describes so wonderfully as this kinesthetic knowledge of history through a doll and through pins and pinafores and dresses. I just feel like that is something that we would be so quick to trivialize in a world where we think girls being allowed into the Boy Scouts is a clear victory. It's for sure not. I know I took that to a different place at the end, but you know how I feel about that. We both agree on that. We feel very strongly in favor of the Girl Scouts. We love the Girl Scouts as an organization, and I'm very much against the Boy Scouts trying to rain on their parade. Not okay. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think there's it's really tough to be a woman, and that's maybe the most understated thing I've said on the show so far, but in part because you're kind of criticized no matter what you do. If you're into STEM, you have to deal with the criticism that women can't be members of STEM, um, that we are biologically predisposed not to be as strong in, in science and math. But also, if you are interested in things that have engendered female, it's it, you are made to be shamed by that. And actually, that's something that I really appreciated in talking to the other women at NCPH, um, for whom the material culture of American Girl is still really important and really meaningful. We met a lot of actually celebs on IGAG. Um, and Dare we say who we met? Yeah. Go for it, Allison. So we met Rebecca Rubin, which is really cool because she was previously a somewhat local to us public history student. Mm-hmm. She shares a name with a doll and she runs this fantastic Instagram account. And we'll link to that in one of our posts that you're able to see it really closely. But she does this really clever work where she positions dolls at historic sites and she takes them on trips. And it was just a real pleasure to meet someone who has the dolls still be such a part of their life and the history work that they do. Shout out to the doll who just got to go to Louisa May Alcott's house. We were proud of you. We're so proud and we're so jealous, even though we've been there. It's amazing. Um, yeah, and when she we had a conversation which I was I was able to record and hope to share on the show. Part of what she was telling me was that the material culture of the dolls allow her both to study um, the material culture of times that interest her, but also to revise the canon of AG and create um, historical characters that um, are not officially extant within the franchise. So she's created an 1830s doll. She's created a temperance era doll. Um, a lot of different uh, dolls from eras um, that the franchise hasn't officially studied or made characters in. So it's really just kind of existed as a plane for women um, to experiment with material culture and historical interpretation. And that's really cool. Yeah. And we're very proud of all of you. I think it's so cool. And now that people are linking back to us, it feels like such a shock because we've been watching all of you for so long and now people are looping back in. And that's been really exciting. 
And and right. And I think we should also say, too, like, you know, we used to feel intimidated because we don't know how to make dolls. We don't know how to make clothes. And I don't anyway. And I don't. Uh, for yourself. <laughs> I mean, I don't and, do it now. But. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I felt it's somewhat of a remove from the fandom and that I wasn't in as deep as some of my peers, but I just had an appreciation for it. So even if you don't read the books along with us, you don't own any dolls, but you're just interested in our show and the ideas, the historical ideas, hopefully we're introducing to you and letting you think of, think about with us, you know, that's also totally fine too. Um, so we're just happy to have everyone here. Now, I know a little bit of what happens in the next book because there are vague allusions to it and I was doing some flipping, but I just want to kind of leave people with a thought as they prepare to get into changes for Felicity. I think that Jiggy Nye is going to become part of the Imperial Industrial Prison Complex in book six. Oh, wow. I think we're never going to get what I want about Jiggy Nye on the page unless we write it ourselves. But now I'm kind of feeling like Mrs. Wentworth, Jiggy Nye, Miss Manderly, Love Triangle. I think that's fair. And I feel like something went on in the Seven Years War that we will never know about. Yeah. That involves heartbreak and trauma and change Jiggy Nye for life. And I'm just going to put this out there. We're going to do maybe an episode on fan fiction. And maybe we write our own and we tell our own story. I can't say that it will be good, but I would enjoy doing that very much. We're going to, it's not going to be good. Oh my, it's not going to be good. But it will fill in some gaps. And I think that will feel good for us. And I will also say, if anyone has done anything and picked up that torch to write the Marcus and Rose story, please tell us. Yeah, please send it to us. Please let us know. Point us to things. We would love to read more. And in the meantime, if people have these stories that they want to reach out, how how should they find you, Mary? I can be found on Twitter at MaryMahoney123 and on Instagram at MimiMahoney, M-I-M-I-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. Oh, that was good spelling. So I am on Twitter with my first and last name, which is Allison Horrocks, H-O-R-R-O-C-K-S. And you can also find us at A Girls Pod on Twitter. As for Instagram, we are the American Girls Podcast on there. You can look that up and find us. And we do also have a Facebook page. So we would love to hear from you there. And please do share our posts with people you think who might be interested. And also, if you can, please rate and review us on the iTunes store. It really helps people find our show. We have absolutely been blown away by the people who have written reviews. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Um, Someone called us Millennial Nerd Girls, and you're not wrong, but it did also feel direct. Thank you. We'll take that. And until next time, the self-described Felicity wannabes, we will catch you at book six. We can't wait. We will see you there. Thank you. 